The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Revelation chapter 2 is where we find ourselves this morning, beginning in verse 18, the church at Thyatira. Uh, next week, the traveling team. How many of you have heard of the traveling team? College students, some of you, uh, we're doing the grid on Sunday nights. It's uh, about what God is doing in the world. The traveling team, or a group of young people founded by Claude Hickman, who uh, literally traveled the United States mobilizing young people to missions as well as finishers. And uh, we have the privilege to host them next week. They're going to be here with us. It'll be a great opportunity to bring friends and family. Claude will be speaking. I'll be here. And uh, just a great time to be together, to be challenged as to what God's doing in the world. They have a bird's eye view of that, and I'm looking forward to it as well. Secondly, as you heard from the, uh, whatever that announcement was with uh, Shannon, Casey, and Megan, uh, the fall festival this week, uh, we need some help. We need candy, we need volunteers. Sign up in the hallway. Great opportunity to come and serve the young people, the kids in our body. And uh, thirdly, we appreciated your prayers while Bev and I were in Ukraine uh, we had a great time there. Bev spoke at a women's conference all day Saturday. Uh, I spoke four times Sunday, four different presentations, messages at a couple of different places, and uh, just a great time. We saw a contrast. This is Kiev. Kiev is the uh, Kiev, as we say it here, uh, the capital of Ukraine, several million people there. And then we went out to a camp that TBC helped build in the villages, and this is what it looks like as you're driving out there. It's like being in the middle of Fiddle on the Roof or Dr. Zhivago, one of those movies of yesteryear. It's like stepping back in time. And so uh, a lot of contrast in that country, and those of you who have been to other countries know who that is. Just a couple of quick stories from there. God blessed us. It was a great time. Probably the thing that stands out in my mind, and uh, I, I didn't even talk to Bev about this, but uh, we were asking Pavel, the pastor of our sister church, about what it was like when he was a young boy growing up, especially in the churches. And uh, he began to tear up. He started talking about his father. And uh, his grandfather had actually gone to prison for his faith. And his father, they were part of a small church, a church of uh, less than 100 folks, And he said, uh, a lot of Sundays when we would get up, our father would be gone. And the reason he would be gone, he was one of the preachers, not a vocational preacher like us on staff, but uh, one of the lay guys in the church who preached regularly. And he would go early on Sunday mornings because it's the only time he could study the only Bible that church had. Only time he could go. So we're talking about the 1950s and 60s and 70s even. And so dad would go early to church so he could study the word because... They had one Bible in a church of 100 folks. And Pavel began to tear up uh, with us and, uh, over breakfast, I think it was. And uh, it was just moving to me to think about uh, what God has done. Our sister church, when we met them in 1992, was one building. It was an old uh, house that gutted out. And they may have had 100, 150 folks there. Now there are five congregations, over 1,500 people worshiping every weekend in this community. So to God be the glory, great things he has done. Amen. <laughs> So sometimes we host kids camp and pastors conferences and you never hear the, or sometimes you hear the outcome, sometimes you don't. But I want you to know they look at TBC and take seriously this sister church relationship and they say it's really been through our generosity and our example that God has done this work. So we're grateful for our brothers and sisters there. Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 18, we're going to look at Thyatira, the tolerant Church, 2.18. Reading from the NIV this morning. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write these words. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. 
I know your deeds, I know your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that you are doing more, you are nail doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual morality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Excuse me. I have given her time to repent of immorality, but she's not willing. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. Excuse me. When we left here, it was 96 degrees Saturday a week ago. We had three nights below freezing in Belyasirkov with a window open, and uh, I can barely breathe. I don't know what time zone I'm in. We just get in Friday, but I'm, I've got this cough from uh, having been there, so I apologize for that. Nothing like hearing yourself in stereo when you cough from up here. Verse 23, I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am, who he, I am he who searches minds and hearts, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold fast our teaching, who have not learned the Satan's so-called deep secrets, <clears throat> I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to you what, have, what you have till I come. To the one who's victorious and does my will, to the end I will give authority over the nations, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I've received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's do this. Tim Mixon, would you stand up here and pray while I finish coughing, please? Just You can pray without a microphone, just do it loudly, bro. We'll try and get through this. Um, the church at Thyatira was a tolerant church. Whatever that is, thank you. Not bad for a one-eyed guy catching that thing. Did you see that? <laughs> so now you get to hear me suck things while I'm preaching. <laughs> we'll see how that works. We may go home early today. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. I wasn't here last week. I'm ready. Church of Thyatira was a tolerant church, and maybe you would agree with me that tolerance is an issue. Our culture has redefined tolerance. See, tolerance is a good word. Tolerance means to accept that which is different from us. That's a good word. But our culture has redefined it, and now it means to accept everything without thought. Uh, One author says this, tolerance, if there's a watchword that describes the American mindset today, it's the word tolerance. The thought behind tolerance is that right and wrong varies from situation to situation. What's wrong for me may be right for you and vice versa. Tolerance teaches that all views are equally valid and there are no absolutes. The only absolute is that there are no absolutes. Go back to that. Tolerance teaches that all views are equally valid. Is that true? Can't be true. All views are equally valid and there are no absolutes. The only absolute is there are no absolutes, which is basically a nonsensical statement. We tolerate everything except intolerance as a result... We are killing truth, and value has no value. It's a great description of our culture of our day, and sadly of many churches who compromise the Word of God. Survey was done uh, in 2013, and a survey among um, churches in America uh, asked this question. uh, I'm sorry, not church in America, but a survey among Americans, period, not in church. All religions are equally good. How many, what percentage of Americans do you think would agree with that statement? Think maybe 40%? 
50%? How many say more than that? More than 50% would agree with that statement. You're right. 64% agree with that. Doesn't matter if you're uh, Muslim, if you're Hindu, if you're Shinto, if you're uh, syncretistic, all religions are equally good. 64%. What percentage of Americans in the same survey, same survey answered that there's no such thing as absolute truth? I mean, what percentage do you think said that? 50%? 60%? 70%? 72% of Americans agree with that statement. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Really. Uh, Roger Palms wrote for the Billy Graham magazine decision for many, many years, and he said, ours is a day where people believe everything is true, but nothing is absolutely true. Revy Zechariah, the great apologist, put it this way, we, we have reversed Jesus' order, we, we have made truth relative and culture supreme, and have been left with a world in which wickedness reigns. You see, when culture triumphs truth, actually, when anything triumphs the truth of God's word, you end up in a mess. And I'm afraid that's what's happening in our culture today, but it's nothing new. The same thing was happening in Thyatira. In fact, if you look in the scriptures in verse 20, he says, I have this against you. You, if you write in your Bible, circle the word tolerate. You tolerate. And tolerance is not bad when it's tolerating good things. We, we, I can tolerate disagreeing with you over certain things. We can disagree without being disagreeable. We tolerate certain viewpoints, certain things, but the one thing we cannot tolerate is sin. And the problem in the church at Thyatira is that, but before I get ahead of myself, let's back up. Thyatira was an interesting place. It was located about 40 miles inland from Pergamum. Dave Tate did a great job preaching last week on Pergamum. Listen to it online. Just a phenomenal job. We looked at Ephesus the first week I preached, Smyrna the second week I preached. Dave did Pergamum. This week we're looking at Thyatira. We'll finish up with Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so we're reading about the seven churches. Uh, Thyatira was an interesting place. One of the authors I read wrote this. He said, Thyatira was politically, culturally, militarily irrelevant. How'd you like to be in that chamber of commerce? You're going to promote Thyatira, and the thing that's said about it is it's politically, cultural, militarily irrelevant. Interesting. Another author wrote these words. It said, uh, oh, this is actually what it looks like then and now. These are ruins from Thyatira. You can find the city now. It's got a different name now. It's a city of 25,000 people. It's a Muslim community in Turkey. And so when you look at it, actually the candlestick of God's blessing is not there. There's not a known Christian church in this city today. And so one of the other authors I read said this, uh, the longest of Christ's letters to these seven churches goes to the least significant, least known, and least remarkable of seven cities. If you look at the seven churches we're looking at in Revelation 2 or 3, this is the longest one. And uh, it says, yet no other church is so commended and no other church is so condemned. So... The irrelevant city, so to speak, gets the longest words of commendation and condemnation. Should arouse some curiosity in it, shouldn't it? Why? I mean, why? If this is the most irrelevant of the cities and of the perhaps churches, and why so much attention is given to them? Obviously, there's something really important happening here for Jesus to speak more words to them than any of the other seven. So the city of Thyatira. The city of Thyatira. Well, it begins with a commendation, a commendation. Commendation is very clear in multiple things there. By the way, uh, there was one important lady from uh, New Testament times who's from Thyatira. She's found in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Ladies, if you've been in women's Bible studies, you've looked at her before. She was a seller of purple fabric. Her name was Lydia. Lydia. 
Acts 16, 14, she hears the gospel in Philippi where she's living. Some speculate she was representing perhaps uh, um, an organization that sold uh, clothing or um, dyed fabric in Philippi. She hears Paul present the gospel. She comes to faith in Jesus. And we know Lydia as this lady who's a seller of purple fabric. And it's interesting. I did a little research on that. Uh, purple, reason why, and you've heard taught in Bible studies that uh, purple was uh, hard to come by, a difficult commodity to have, difficult clothing to have. And the reason is because they got the purple dye from sea snails, the mucus of sea snails found in the Mediterranean. And so uh, they would milk these sea snails to get the purple coloring, and therefore it was the least available of all fabrics, which made it the most expensive of all fabrics, which purple became the color of royalty. And of certain football teams, like uh, the crew at University of Mary Harden Baylor, right? And uh, also another team that I'm fond of as well. And, and so what we see is that purple became the fabric of royalty at that age because it wasn't available that much. It was in, in demand because of what it represented. And you got it from milk. Can you imagine milking a sea snail? I've tried to picture that in my mind. How in the world you do? Somebody who's a scientist come and tell me how you do that after. And, and I, I mean... You're not going to do like cows. I don't know how you're going to do that. You smash it and get... But anyway, somebody tell me about that later. It doesn't apply today. There is one thing Thyatira was known for. Trade guilds. Trade guilds. Uh, Thyatira had more trade guilds, even though it was an insignificant city, than almost any city in the ancient Near East. And trade guilds, think of the precursor to unions in our day and age. There were trade guilds for bakers, there were trade guilds for manufacturers, there were trade guilds for those who did leather work. And the thing to know about trade guilds, though, each trade guild also had their own god. And so if you were a member of the leather working trade guild, you had a god that you worshipped. And that god you would worship through feasts and through festivities and through temple prostitution. And that comes into play when we see the sin of Jezebel in a few minutes. So if you're a leather worker, you've got a God. If you're a baker, you have a God. If you're a manufacturer of fabric, you have a God. And so each trade guild had their own God. Trade guilds met to protect the workers. Trade guilds met to train workers. But they also, in that day and age, worshiped together. And they worshiped these pagan gods. So that's the setting for Thyatira. The first thing we find is commendation. Commendation. If you look at verse 19, he says, I know your deeds, I know your love, I know your faith, I know your service, and I know your perseverance. And so we look at this and we think, man, this is a pretty good church. I mean, the church at Ephesus had lost their first love. The church at Thyatira had loved. I know your deeds, the word is works there. You're doing good works, and the word service is similar to that. You've got faith, you've got perseverance. And I love what it says at the end of the verse. Your latter works are better than those you began with. They're finishing strong, they're doing well. One of the great joys I have being a pastor at the same place for over 30 years is watching people finish well. I mean, it's a great joy. Went and met with the family yesterday. One of our men, 49 years old, will be on the last days of his life. And I've watched this dear brother with a bad cancer press into the Lord, press into the Lord, press into the Lord. And he says, your, your latter days are better than your beginning years. And it brings me great joy because many of you guys are finishing so strong. And you look at that lineup and think, wow, I want to join that church. If we, I, I was a little kid growing up, and when I was a kid, grew up in a little Baptist church in New Orleans, and you walk the aisle to join the church, and I'm thinking, I would walk the aisle to join that church, wouldn't you? I, I mean, you're thinking, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. And once again, we say, not so fast. Because the next verse begins with a contrast. 
If you have the NIV, it says, nevertheless. If you have the NASB, it says, but. It says, but. I have this against you. Remember, Jesus is speaking. When Jesus says he's got something against you, you better listen. I have this against you. But what is it that he has against them? What he has against them is their tolerance. Not their tolerance for good things, but their tolerance for sinful things. I have this against you. You tolerate the woman, Jezebel. She calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so she's leading believers astray. She's leading them to commit acts of sexual morality to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, it's interesting. He says, I've got this against you. You've got this lady in your body, and you're tolerating her, and she's Jezebel. You know, there's a question among scholars. Is this a woman named Jezebel, an actual woman who lived in the first century, and her name was Jezebel? Or was she a woman who was acting like Jezebel of the Old Testament? She's characterized as Jezebel. Uh, my answer is, I don't know. I don't know. Could have been a woman living in the first century. Her actual name was Jezebel. I think that's a great possibility. Uh, but I think more than likely, when you understand who Jezebel was, there probably aren't too many people who name their daughter Jezebel. I think she had the characteristics of Jezebel. Now, if you named your daughter Jezebel, I apologize for that statement, but you need to read the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, you read about the original Jezebel. First Kings 21, take a look at it later. First Kings 21 tells us about Jezebel. Jezebel was a queen. Her husband was King Ahab. King Ahab is the low water mark in Israel's history. Every other king is compared to him when they do wickedly. He was a bad king. He was an evil man. One day Ahab went for a walk and he saw a vineyard, a vineyard close to his palace. He had other vineyards, he had other things, but he wanted this vineyard because of where it was located. A guy named Naboth owned the vineyard. And he went to Naboth, he wanted to buy the vineyard for Naboth, but Naboth said, this vineyard's been in our family for generations, so I don't want to sell it. Well, like any two or three-year-old that didn't get their way, King Ahab goes back to the palace and he pouts. And the queen comes in, that's uh, Jezebel. She comes in and she sees her pouting husband, the king. The king isn't happy. She wants to make him happy. So she says, what's the problem? He says, I want the vineyard close to the palace. This guy Naboth owns it, but he won't sell it to me. And so she says, I'll take care of it. She wants to be a good wife, but she's a wicked woman. And so what she does is she hires two guys who are called evil men in the scriptures, devious men in the scriptures. She hires those two guys to come in, testify against the testify that uh, Naboth has said bad things about the king, and, and so she has Naboth murdered so she can give her pouting husband, the king, his vineyard. Now let me ask you a question. Would you name your daughter after that woman? And not only that, not only does she have the, this guy Naboth killed because he wouldn't sell the vineyard, she also is a worshiper of Baal, she also practices witchcraft, and she also tried to kill the prophets of God. That's Jezebel. Well, it could be a woman named Jezebel. Maybe she just had the characteristics of Jezebel. By the way, if you read the rest of Jezebel's story, it's found in 2 Kings chapter 9. In 2 Kings chapter 9, Elijah, the great prophet, one day said, Jezebel's going to die, the dogs are going to eat her. In 2 Kings chapter 9, we see that she's thrown from a window, and guess what happens to her? She becomes dog food. It's literally what happens. She's eaten by dogs. And so, this is Jezebel. The important thing here is what she does. Is she an actual woman or a woman whose characteristic is Jezebel of the Old Testament? I'm not 100% sure either way, but I do know this. She was an evil woman who led people astray. She was a false teacher, a false prophetess who led people astray. She was one who 
promoted things that God had forbidden. In Acts chapter 15, verse 29, at the Jerusalem Council, it it, it, uh, settled out in the first century that salvation was by faith in Jesus alone, in Christ alone. And at the end of that, they also said you should abstain from that which has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been struggled, from sexual morality. Abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols, abstain from sexual morality. So you look at the contrast, look at what it says in verse 20. It, It says she was teaching them to do what? Commit acts of sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. The exact thing that the church, the first century church had agreed not to do, she's teaching these people to do, and they're doing it. And Jesus looks at the church at Thyatira and says, your deeds are good, your faith is good, your love is good, your service is good, your perseverance is good, but you tolerate. You tolerate. You tolerate sinful, evil things within the church like sexual immorality and things that have been given to pagan gods. Not only that, look at verse 24. Jesus called, these people call uh, her teachings the deep things of Satan. Deep things of Satan. Isaiah the prophet prophesied these words, Woe to you who call evil good and good evil. Woe to you who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to you who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You know, when I read that verse, look at Thyatira, look at our culture today, and even what's preached in many churches today, Isaiah 5.20 comes to my mind. Woe to you who call evil good and good evil. Because the judgment of God is going to come upon you. I mean, when you look at the description that Christ gives of himself in verse 18, the Son of God, first of all, he doesn't call himself Son of Man here, but the Son of God, so he's coming in with weighty authority, whose eyes are like a flame. We read that two other times in Revelation. Revelation 1, Revelation 19, it's always a time of judgment. Whose feet are like burnished bronze, that has the brilliance of bronze, and what he's saying is, I'm coming in judgment and righteous indignation against you. And the reason I'm doing it is because you tolerate things. First thing they tolerate is sexual morality. Woe to the church who tolerates these things. Now, my friends, if I look at our culture today and the things that the church is faced with and the things our culture is promoting, the area of sexual morality pops up on my radar right away. I mean, immediately comes on our radar. It comes on our radar. In fact, look at the discipline that he's going to offer here. In verse 21, I gave her time to repent. She's not going to repent. So Jezebel, her time of repentance is gone. I'm going to cast her into better sickness. And those who commit adultery with her, those who follow her ways, great tribulation is going to come upon them unless they repent. So those that are following her, they can repent. There's still hope for them. Not only that, I'm going to kill her children. I think that means those those who are offspring, not little offspring, but those that follow her teaching, I'm going to kill them with pestilence so that all the churches will know. Jesus says, I'm going to exercise my authority over the churches because she stands and those followers are stand against my authority. Specifically in the areas of sexual morality and the areas of things that we shouldn't be involved in. So let's pick the first thing, sexual morality. I listened to Dave Tate's message last week and my prayer is the same prayer that he had for me. He had for himself, I pray for myself. I want to be compassionate here, but I don't want to compromise here. You see, in our culture, we call some evil things good. Things like abortion. 
We say that's a woman's right. That's the evil thing we're calling good. Same-sex marriage. What's the right of two people who are in love? So the scriptures call it wrong, and we can't call that which is evil good. Issue of homosexuality. We're talking about sexual morality here. Our culture says it's a good thing. It's a fine thing if you want to do it, but the scriptures don't agree with that. I would go on and say, since that's only 4% of our population, what we do agree to are maybe some respectable sins. I'll pop a book cover up in a second. And the greatest majority of us in this room, only 4% are homosexual in our society, so that leaves 96% of us in our struggle is going to be with heterosexual lust. And we can't call good things evil and evil things good. We can't do that because we risk the same discipline that was given to the church at Thyatira. So you're thinking, well, how do people justify those things? Have you ever wondered that? I, I mean, how do people justify that today? On the trip we just took, I read a book called Counterculture by David Platt. Excellent book. In the chapter he had on sexual morality, he dealt with heterosexual immorality as well as homosexual morality. And it was fascinating to me to read several different theologians he quoted who were seeking to justify homosexuality today. One of them is a guy who is a uh, theologian from the Emory um, University School of Theology, the Chandler School of Theology. So this is a guy who's got a PhD who's teaching upcoming pastors and biblical scholars. Here's what he says. I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of scriptures. Let's just stop right there. Have you read enough? I mean, really, if Do you see what he's saying? The the one thing I appreciate about this guy, he's saying, the scriptures do teach this, we just reject it. Talking about homosexuality, the acceptance of it. I think it's important to state clearly that we do in fact reject the straightforward commands of scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. Excuse me? What exactly is that authority? He asked the question. It's a great question. So he says, we reject scripture, we get hold to another authority. So if you're not going to hold scripture, what authority are you going to hold to? I appreciate this guy's honesty. We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others who've witnessed to, uh, which tell, which, uh, thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way God has created us. So we throw out the scriptures, and because people have experiences, it's okay. So let me ask you a question. Let me ask the guys here. Some guy walks into your house, and he's got a gun, and he puts it to the head of one of your kids or your wife. And he says, I've got experience doing this, and I feel pretty good when it happens. And so because I have that experience, I guess it's okay, right? And you're going to say as a man, you're going to say as a man, Who said pull the trigger? Who said that? (laughs) You're going to say, of course not. That's ludicrous. That's crazy. How can somebody's experience, because they feel good and they enjoy doing it, trump truth? That's the world we live in. That's the world we live in. Same-sex marriage, homosexuality, abortion, keep the list going on. That's the world we live in. So this guy goes on and he concludes, by so doing, that is, having experience trump truth, we explicitly reject 
the premises of scriptural statements that condemn homosexuality, namely, it's a vice freely chosen, a symptom of human corruption, disobedient to God's created order. So let's address two areas. Let's address truth. You know, today there's a proliferation of available materials for you on television on about 700 channels. The internet, electronic readers, social media. I mean, there's so much stuff to read out there. How do you know if it's true or not? If it doesn't agree with this, it's wrong. Can we establish that as our foundation? That's our foundation. And when my experience goes against this, God's right, and I'm wrong. Period. Period. God's right, and I'm wrong. And I've never had some of the battles that we're talking about here today, but I've had other battles. And in those battles, God's always right. Has it worked out for you when you stood against Christ? Not very well. So, we look at that. Then we've got to look at the specific areas talked about here. Sexual immorality, things offered to idols, gray areas. I mean, there are things that we participate in. When's the last time you got up and walked out of a movie? Let, let me rephrase that. When's the last time you wished you would have gotten up and walked out of a movie? You know, one of the things about flying now, um, you get to watch a bunch of movies. Uh, you read, you watch movies, you sleep, and then you go crazy, then you watch movies, and you... It's a nine-hour flight from Munich to New York City. And uh, Bev and I started a movie together, and uh, about three minutes into it, we shut it off. Um, we can't watch this. Then what godly people do? You're, you're a legalist. No, I'm not. I mean, I believe in God's grace, God's mercy, God's goodness. But there are just certain things godly men and women shouldn't do. Sexual morality. I heard Dave's impassioned plea last week. Hey, if you're sleeping with somebody you're not married to, for the sake of the reputation of our Savior, for the sake of kids and grandkids watching you, for the sake of God's glory, stop it. Stop it. So we look at this and we realize he's a good God. That's what we sing about all day today. But in his goodness, he will discipline us if we continue in sin. That's not a popular message today. Hebrews chapter 12, jot it down, beginning in verse 6. It says, just as an earthly father disciplines his son, so does a heavenly father who loves us. And so there's discipline here. There's judgment here. Verse 21, she's not going to repent. Verses 22 and 23, those who follow after her will be judged. They will experience, look at verse 22, great tribulation. Nevertheless, though, verse 25, here's the hope, here's the change. Uh, by the way, here's the book I was talking about, Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate, Jerry Bridges. And you know what? I mean, we, we will pontificate about same-sex marriages, about homosexuality, about abortion, about other things, and we should. But do we pontificate on these sins we tolerate? Here are the chapters in his book. Sins we tolerate. Uh, respectable sins. Impatience and irritability. Hmm. Anger. Judgmentalism. 
envy, jealousy, materialism, gluttony. I skipped that chapter when I read this book. (laughs) Respectable sins that we tolerate. So he goes on and he says, I commend you. In fact, I challenge you. The challenge is hold fast. Look at verse 25. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. In verse 24, he said, I I commend those who are not holding to this teaching. And so he he says, I want you to hold on. I don't want you to give up. I know the culture is against you. I know that many are against you. But in the midst of that, I I want you to hold fast. I want you to cling to until I come back. Don't give up. You've heard me use this illustration before. If you've been at TBC for a number of years, it's been a number of years since I used it on a commuter flight from Portland, Maine to Boston. The pilot heard an unusual noise near the rear of the aircraft. It was a small aircraft. He turned the controls over to the co-pilot, and he went back to check. As he reached the tail section, the plane hit an air pocket. His name was Tom Dempsey. He was thrown against the rear door. He quickly discovered that the the mysterious noise uh, was that the rear door was unlatched. It's where the steps were, and they had been unlatched on takeoff. This air pocket threw him against that door. He was instantly sucked out of the jet. The the co-pilot radioed, saw the light come on, indicating the door was open. Uh, The passengers screamed. It was a small plane, only about 10 passengers screamed. The pilot had gotten taken away, so he requested the emergency landing at the closest airport. After the plane landed, they found the pilot, Tom Dempsey. He was holding on to the outdoor ladder of the aircraft. Somehow he had caught the ladder. He held on to it for 12 minutes while the plane was flying in for a landing. He, his head was only 12 inches from the runway. You imagine how he was hanging on for dear life? The newspaper report said it took airport personnel several minutes to ply his fingers from the ladder. You bet it did. And Jesus says, those of you who are in the midst of a culture that teaches you good things are bad and bad things are good, you cling. You don't give up. You hold on to my teaching, not Jezebel's teaching. You hold on the truth. You hold on to me. Because when you do that in the future, you'll be ruling with me and I'll be with you. What a promise. He says, you cling to me, you hold on to me. And he says in verse 27, the one who overcomes, the one who's victorious, the one who keeps my deeds, I will give you authority over the nations. And I'll be with you. That's the morning star in the next verses. Jesus is the morning star. He says, you will rule and you'll receive that which I give you. My friends, godliness, not tolerance. Godliness is obedience. Obedience. The word's been hijacked in our culture. There's a time when tolerance is a good thing and still is a good thing, but not when it comes to sinful things. Let's make no mistake about who the enemy is. The enemy is not the people in the world we live in, the enemy is the one who rules this world. The enemy is Satan. We have the good news of the gospel to free people from the sins that they live in. And we have the privilege to point them to a gracious and merciful Father. And so we love those who are separated from the Savior. We turn those who know the Savior who are walking in sin back to the Savior. So repentance can take place and their lives can be lived to the fullness of his glory. Ken Geyer writes these words, The enemy has never been more relentless, more cunning, more ruthless. A dawning decision awaits us today. We can sheathe our swords and retreat. 
we can lay our swords down and surrender. We can fall on our swords in despair. Or we can take out the sword of the word of God and the gospel. And speak of the God of grace and the God of mercy. And the good God we sing of. He's a good, good father. That's who he is. And when we do that, the lost world around us will see the Savior and be set free. Amen? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you in this word to the church at Thyatira, dear brothers and sisters who were filled with good deeds and love and faith and service and perseverance. We're doing strong in the beginning. Thank you for those who held fast, the ones you commend. God, we want to be like that. In the midst of a culture that rejects the things we believe, help us to hold fast. But Father, we also grieve. We grieve for fellow saints who have fallen by the way of Jezebel, people we know, people we love, bond servants of yours, who love the world more than you right now. Some who may sit with us right now, Father, we pray for them. Pray for repentance. Pray for restoration, reconciliation. And Father, there are those who don't know Jesus yet, part of this world, who reject the things of the Savior, reject the Savior. Maybe apathetically, maybe openly. God, I pray for the Spirit of God to work through the Word of God and the lives of those of us that love you, to draw them to you. Father, help us to keep our swords unsheathed, to go forward in the name of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See you next week.